Good morning. It's exciting to be back together to worship. I appreciate the educational week off. Uh, it was fruitful and uh, totally got an A in my class. So praise God. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. We're engaged in a sermon series where we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And right now we're going to conclude the first chapter of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, otherwise known as Galatians 1. And this is God's word. And we should hear it and receive it as such. Galatians 1, 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just sang about our request that you would give us eyes that we might see, that you would give us ears that we might hear. Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts that would receive from you all that you have for us. And so, Lord, we come exciting and expected, knowing that this is the place to be, in your house, with your people, singing your praises. And so, Lord, we ask that you would set apart this time, make it holy, that we would glorify you rightly and that you would transform us as we are desperately aware of our need for that. So condescend to us, Lord, draw near, bend down, give us of your spirit that we might be renewed and strengthened, comforted, and that you would continue to knit our hearts together, together with Christ, in whose name we ask all these things and more. And all God's people agree. Amen. As we've been going through our study of Galatians, pedestrian pace, certainly reasonable to describe it. One of the things I want to make sure that gets hammered into us early on is the remembering truth that the gospel is not about what we do for God. It is about what God in Christ has done for us. Galatians is written, we can tell, because Paul is having his apostolic authority undermined. There are false teachers who have infiltrated these churches in order to draw them back to the slavery of a misunderstood Jewish ancestry. These are people who come from the culture and religion of Judaism, but they come not knowing the God to whom all those things belong 
and all those things are pointed. See, their accusation is, their allegation is, that Paul's not a real apostle. He wasn't with Jesus during his earthly ministry, and even those who were understand it only in part. In other words, their playbook is simple. Undermine Paul's apostolic credentials in order to negate the time he spent teaching those churches so that the people will listen to them and not to him. We've explored in the previous weeks what it means that Paul didn't run quickly to Jerusalem to understand the religion of which he was just dramatically converted to. We've seen that one of the reasons that Paul doesn't quickly go to the apostles in Jerusalem is to establish whether he intended to or not, or whether he understood it in the moment doesn't matter, but he was establishing an apostolic independence. He's not a second-generation apostle. He's a first-generation apostle. It was the resurrected Christ himself who gave Paul his gospel on the Damascus Road. Remembering that Paul didn't receive the gospel through instruction, but rather that he received the gospel through revelation, divine revelation, helps us understand the significance of that time period between Paul's conversion and his first couple weeks spent with Peter. That time frame becomes extremely relevant in Paul establishing his authority. This is why he gives reference to it in the passage we have for us today. But in addition to establishing Paul's apostolic independence, we've also seen that Paul was equally establishing his ministerial dependence. In other words, Paul is not looking for an outside source to explain the faith to him. Paul has the scripture of which he is a qualified student And so he spends that time leaning into a methodology that is the only one that will sustain the vibrancy of your faith in Christ in this life. If you do not spend time with God in his word, how will you know what he is saying? Every parent knows communication is the hallmark of transparency in your relationship with your kids. If they don't communicate with you, how are you to communicate with them? Do you really want a one-way conversation with your spouse or your children, with your parents, even your coworkers? Email's great at times. Phone calls are better. Face-to-face, whoo, the best. So, Paul didn't just receive the gospel, 
from outside sources. He received it by divine revelation from Jesus Christ. And then he went into the pattern of seeking Christ in the scripture and discovered that Christ is on every page, that Christ is in every book. That there's no new religion being developed at this alpha point of Christianity. That this was, is, and always will be the one true faith of Yahweh. The one people of God drawn together. Ephesians 4 is so beautiful to me. One faith, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. All that unites is found in Christ. Which is not a negation of the importance or power of doctrine. It's the truest understanding of what all those doctrines are pointing to. Life in Christ. So Paul is confirming the experience he had on the Damascus road as trustworthy and authentic by seeking the truth of it in Scripture, where God's word flourishes. Luther tells us all good things flourish. So, we have apostolic independence, we have ministerial dependence, and we have missional proclamation. Listen to Luther's words. Luther says, it is silly to ask what Paul did in Arabia. What else would he have done but preach Christ? At the hour of his conversion, it becomes clear to him in this alpha point of his faith that Christ is to be proclaimed, that the transformation is real, the power of the Spirit true and trustworthy. So when he says here that he didn't run, verse 17, to Jerusalem and instead went into Arabia and then back to Damascus, what he's saying is Christ governs his life and his ministry. And it is, verse 18, after three years that Paul goes up to Jerusalem to see Peter, Cephas, Peter, same guy. So the power of this after three years, in the words of R.C. Sproul, for three years Paul went to seminary with God as his professor. Do you think that invitation is not open to you? Do you think it's only men like Luther or Calvin Augustine or John Knox, it's only them that can have God as their professor. The word disciple means student. We are students and sons. So Paul, having spent parts of three years actually finally makes the journey back to the city he's known well. After all, the Apostle Paul used to be a Pharisee. In fact, in one place, he calls himself the Pharisee of Pharisees, the best of the bunch. 
You think he doesn't know Jerusalem? You think he doesn't know what it is to walk in Solomon's colonnade or to gather and sacrifice in the temple? You think he doesn't know the sights and sounds and smells? He returns to the city he loves, among the people he loves, but he is not the same man. It might be the same city. He is not the same man. And he goes and he hangs out with the apostle Peter. I love that he doesn't call him an apostle here. Not for political points. Not for argument's sake. But because of the tenderness of brotherhood that the titles can step away for but a moment. One of the great joys for me in in being and meeting with the elders in the room right outside this sanctuary is that there are plenty of times where we're doing the titled work as elders together. But sometimes it's Dale and Brent and Kevin and Matt. And the titles and the offices and the responsibilities can melt away and we can be brothers in battle partners in this missional move of God to draw his people to himself and to do so powerfully and effectively. He's just Cephas, just Peter. He doesn't have to be the rock for two weeks. He can be Paul's friend, his partner, his brother, And he only gets 15 days that way. Just a couple of weeks. Time away with brothers is awesome and always inadequate. It's never enough. I think that's one of the rich joys of heaven is being with your brothers and sisters in the most important of all events, the worship of God together. Don't undermine or neglect the importance of together, together. So they get a couple of weeks together. And Paul, remember, he's writing this letter on the offensive because he's defending the faith. He's defending the gospel. It's easy if we go this slow to forget the fury with which Paul begins this letter. He's still on his main topic, that he has the right, the power, and the authority to correct error and to rebuke it clearly. So what Paul's doing here is still on message. He is an apostle. He has these rights. And there are those who are manipulating what it means that Paul goes and journeys to Jerusalem and they seek to undermine Paul's credentials by saying he went there as student. Not as co-student. Not as co in this journey and missional work. They seek to say that Peter is over Paul. The church of Rome still holds that view. Peter, the first pope, it's nonsense. Peter would be appalled 
to be labeled as such. But here, Paul is saying that he didn't go to find out what is true. He didn't go to Jerusalem to learn as a student from the real apostles. He is a real apostle. So he says here, verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles. Peter's the only one he saw. And then we get this weird in English, except. And then we get James the Lord's brother. So we're going to do this backwards. James the Lord's brother. Time out. In what sense are we using the term brother? Is this relative? Could this be cousin? I mean, it would be possible, but not true based on the whole testimony of Scripture. Jesus clearly has brothers and sisters, according to the Gospels. That would mean that Mary had children with Joseph. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. It's a false view of Mary that would seek to say Jesus could have no, I'll be fair, half-brothers, half-sisters, since he alone, the last Adam, So James, the Lord's brother, is the same James who wrote the book of? Yes. And in fact, James isn't the only brother of Jesus to write a biblical book. Did you know that Jude is the Lord's brother? Yeah. Yeah. Check out Jude this week. It's not long. It would only take us a couple of years to preach through it. (laughs) James, the Lord's brother. Yes, Jesus and James have DNA in common, given them from Mary. But we're also told in Scripture that James does not believe in Jesus as the Son of God, barely as rabbi, until the time of the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, James is privileged, like Paul, to have received a particular divine revelation. I wonder if Jesus misses his brother growing up in Mary's kitchen going to bed in Joseph's house and working in his shop. Certainly it's for ministerial purposes that Jesus goes and reveals himself to his brother. We go on to discover that James, the brother of Jesus, becomes probably the teaching elder in Jerusalem. Because the apostles are messengers and they are leaving Jerusalem to go and minister just as Jesus told them that they would. Do you remember Acts 1.8? You will be my witnesses, Jesus says to his disciples. Beginning where? In Jerusalem, of course. Where else would you begin? And then Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. 
The apostles have an apostolic mission. But who leads the church in Jerusalem? Who leads this precious early church under the persecutions of Rome, the hatred of the Jewish leaders who take basically every opportunity to kill the leaders of this Christian movement whenever Rome is busy looking the other way. That's how James the Lord's brother dies. He's martyred, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, who of course is writing for the Romans, keeping a history log. There's nobody in the history of the earth who had less interest in propagating the tenets of Christianity than Josephus. But he notes the martyrdom of James, the Lord's brother, in his history and chronicles of this time period. So we have James and we have brother. And we will see when we get to Acts 15 that it is James who is running the apostolic council of Jerusalem. James is a heavy hitter. He's a pillar of the early church, but he does not deserve the title because he does not hold the office as an apostle. So why is verse 19 constructed the way that it is? We plainly read in English, but I saw none of the other apostles. Other there seems to signify that whoever will follow joins Peter as an apostle. Peter uses that construct in his own letters, referring to Paul and his letters as ones that are like the other scriptures. Peter's using it in the way we would most naturally expect. But James, the Lord's brother, isn't an apostle. So how do we understand this I saw none of the other apostles except this formula of other and except. Well, the answer is found biblically in the use of the construct here that deals with except. And I won't spend long on this because it doesn't matter too much, but it matters. And you'll see this construct patterned exactly the same way in Matthew 12, 4. If you're interested in this, Go there, double check it, rewind the live stream, and you'll see why it matters. But here for the rest of us is the idea. There are sometimes used this only or this other except formula to describe something that is more generally or broadly true within a more specific or defined context. In other words... It's not that James is an apostle, but rather he's so significant that Paul could be considered deceiving in this historical account if he fails to mention that he didn't just see Peter, he also saw James. It's not that James gets vaulted to the same title and office Peter has, it's rather the 
the pinnacle nature of James in his ministry in Jerusalem at the time is desperately worth mentioning in order to avoid what we Presbyterians like to do, which is quibbling. Paul's erasing the need here for anybody to quibble with him about offices and titles. Because it doesn't undermine the main point. The main point is, he didn't go to Jerusalem to gain power. He didn't go to Jerusalem to gain knowledge. He went to Jerusalem to fellowship in the apostolic ministry with Peter. Now, it's at this point that I have to take the pastoral time. And if you're not interested in the usage of this except, come back. We're going to keep going. Can you imagine Paul sitting down with Peter doing this? Don't tell me anything about Jesus' life. Don't, don't tell me anything about the stories of where you went and what you did. Ah, it's what you do when a bad commercial comes on. And you tell your kids to put their earmuffs on, right? I wasn't speaking in tongues, I promise. Rather, what I'm trying to help us understand is that it's laughable to say that Paul doesn't enjoy stories from Peter in these 15 days. What else would they love to talk about most? Ministry's hard. Jesus is awesome. We have to talk about hard, but let's run to the awesome. So it's laughable that Paul doesn't get stories here. The point is not that he can't have a story given to him. The point here is that that's not the sole purpose for why he went. But those stories are rich. I love the way Machen identifies this thought. He says it this way. He says, it's not like the public life and ministry of Jesus happened in a corner. Everybody knows these stories. Everybody knows these parables. This is not a thing that was hidden away. Peter's free to tell Paul Whatever stories he wants, he spent years daily with Jesus. He spent years walking and watching, working and listening, running and serving, praying, receiving persecution. Pete's got stories to tell. He's a blabbermouth. Right? How many times does he blurt out the thing that everybody else is thinking? You think Peter zipped his lips when Paul was in town? <laughs> he can't zip his lips when Jesus is teaching. You're free to interrupt my sermons. Peter can interrupt Jesus's. You get this? Let them be human. How many times do we read the Bible and they're just caricatures of people? They're two-dimensional creations that belong on felt boards. 
more than real people in our hearts and in our minds and our imaginations. So when Paul says here in 19, he didn't go and see the other apostles. He saw Peter. And he did spend time with James. It's not to elevate James. It's to avoid the quarrels and quibbles that can come when people are not exercising charity in the way that they talk about someone else. Paul is so forcefully clear that we get verse 20 to follow. Listen to the weight of what he's saying. In what I am writing to you before God... I do not lie. Paul is saying, I will swear on my oath to be governed and administrated by Yahweh himself that this assertion is true. That's why James is added. So that no one could accuse him of wording his words in such a particular way that he avoids the detection of an untruth. He's saying, no, I didn't get to see the other apostles. Peter was the only one in town, so we hung, and it was awesome. And I did get to spend time with James, who I'm sure also had some pretty good stories with Jesus. I imagine they begin with, and another time he totally upset me. Because every sibling loves that their other sibling is perfect. Yeah, be Jesus' brother for five minutes. Oh, tell me he's not your favorite. <laughs> he sure is mine. But he swears an oath. And it's worth mentioning, don't swear on the lives of your children. Don't swear on your mother's grave or your uncle. Do you understand the, the list we could write right now? There's no power in those things to govern the veracity of what you're saying and hold you accountable for the deceptions that could be attached. Don't make an oath in such a way that you think God won't govern it. If you're going to swear an oath, do it in his name, or don't you dare do it. Clear? Now, verse 21. Paul's giving his history you got a couple weeks in Jerusalem with Peter and some James time. And then, 21, he goes to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. What's the significance of this? This is his travel history. Anybody who wants to get a job with the FBI better understand you have to account for where you've been and who you were with in very broad strokes and often to the tiniest of details. 
So he's giving the travel record. So where are these two places, Syria and Cilicia? They're in southern Turkey. This is kind of the northeast end of the Mediterranean Sea. You could also call it southern Turkey, what is modern-day southern Turkey, and the coastal lands that are above Israel. In fact, Syria is still a place we refer to on the news almost every day. Why does Paul add this note? Well, one, he's establishing the history, but also... That's how they became churches. Paul ministered in this greater Damascus area and in southern and central Turkey. It might be on some of your ancient maps or older maps as Asia Minor. It's that drumstick that sticks into the Mediterranean. You know you're heavy when you see maps and think, oh, that looks like this food and that looks like that food. You'll never look at Turkey the same. It's even called Turkey. (laughs) Italy's a boot, and I haven't figured out how to eat that. Although, total aside, have you guys ever seen the guy who makes cakes that look like real things? Yeah, I'll eat that boot anytime he wants to cook me one. Back to the point. What Paul's saying here is he made himself known in Jerusalem He was doing ministry in the areas north and coastal of Israel. And then he's reminding them, verse 22, that he was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. This one seems the least on topic, but it's totally on topic. Here's why. Was Paul hiding in Jerusalem for those couple weeks? Was Paul unwilling to be seen in public? Was Paul not in the temple? Was he hidden away in some dark dungeon of the Christian's courtyard? Like, why else didn't he see other apostles? Is he afraid of other apostles? Is he so Western and ahead of schedule that he sees himself as a rugged individual who can't connect with all the apostles. He's just going to point a finger out and be independent but have a little Peter time. Is that reasonable? (laughs) Please say no. It's not reasonable at all. It's that they were missionaries. The apostles didn't hang out in Jerusalem. That's why James was elding in Jerusalem because the apostles, as we've already said, had gone out. Well, where were they most likely to be? Start in Jerusalem, Jesus said, and then go where? Yeah. So what Paul's saying is that he didn't have face-to-face time with the churches of Judea. Now, It's really fun to read some critical scholars, please see the scare quotes, who are then saying, well, that proves that that Paul was never in Jerusalem because Jerusalem's in Judea. (sighs) I read these people. You get their, their point? 
It's, it's like pointing out a leaf and saying that the tree couldn't exist. It's ridiculous. Is Jerusalem inside the southern kingdom of Judea? Yes. So was Paul known in any Judean churches face to face? Yeah, one. The one he just spent two weeks in. Because otherwise, he's been outside Israel. He's been outside Judea. What's happening here is that the Apostle Paul is reminding them that he only got FaceTime with Peter and with James when he was in the church in a broad sense of Jerusalem. Did he go to every Bible study in Jerusalem? Was he a member of every kingdom group for those two weeks? No. But when he says he was unknown in person, the language there is known face to face. It's different when you know someone face to face. You guys heard of people like Tim Keller and John Piper? Matt Chandler? You've heard of some of these guys? Kevin DeYoung? How many of you know them face to face? You can see their face and not know them face to face. You can be in a room. I was in a room with John Piper a handful of times. I spent a weekend driving Tim Keller around when he was visiting William and Mary years ago when I was an intern there. So do I know Tim Keller face to face? I mean... I did for like, and it was over. And he wasn't famous or powerful at the time. He was just some guy who had a student in the school who came and spoke at large group. I did not know he would go on to be what he already was. Tim Keller. Who do you know face to face? So Paul is still unknown in person. He has not been face-to-face -face in the churches of Judea. But the apostles have. But if the apostles went to Cilicia or Syria, would they have known all of the churches there face-to-face -face like Paul does? Not unless they went house by house, city by city. What Paul's saying here is that he's not twisting his words when he says, in this early visit to Jerusalem, he only had time with one apostle and one other senior pillar leader of that community. And he didn't get to see any of the others because they were out doing their ministry. They were living out this missional and pastoral call that they had to preach the gospel in Judea and Samaria. So then Paul records... For us, the significance of all of this in 23 and 24. In verse 23, Paul says, They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. I love this construct. One of the joys of being able to study sentences a lot is you, you happen upon 
phrases that are less common than you might suppose. Listen to this verse 23. They only were hearing it said. So what follows is hearsay. There are no eyewitnesses to this. It's hearsay testimony. I wish Jacob was here in person so he could say amen. But it's hearsay. What's the rumor mill saying? What's the gossip around this idea? What's the coffee talk, if you prefer? It's this. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. There's so much beauty in used to and is now. Would that every Christian confessed used to am now. Used to am now. There's all kinds of stuff you used to be. There's all kinds of stuff you used to want. There's all kinds of stuff that you used to do. But now, because of Christ, because of your union with Christ, by faith in Christ, you can see used to turned into is now. Is that true of you in your walk with Christ that you used to be angrier with your sister, but now less so or not at all? I used to desire, list out whatever indulgent sins you battle with and understand that because of the blood of Christ, that cleanses you and cleans you and prepares you for his heavenly kingdom, you will one day, even if it's not now, say, I used to, and now I don't. I don't want. I don't do. I'm not that guy anymore. So it's easy for us to see that the rumor mill has established that the coffee talk is surrounding the radical nature of Paul's conversion. That he who used to try and destroy us has been called and empowered by God to serve us. To grow us. He who tore down now builds up. See the beauty of this used to, is now, will soon, could be added in that framework. But there's a problem that happens here. We who grow up with Christian parents, learning the Bible in biblical churches, being catechized at home and perhaps at school or in other arenas of life, there is a threat to our understanding of the transforming power of the gospel if we think that it is only the radical conversions like Paul that are worth talking about. Because the result of this, read it in verse 24, is that the churches of Judea glorify God 
because of the transformation that Paul experiences, because of the calling that he's had, because of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, they are glorifying God because of the radical way that God transformed Paul of Tarsus into the mighty Apostle Paul who writes almost half of the letters of the New Testament. Do you think, and I think you do, really believe that that's the only way that your story can lead to the glorification of God? That all you kids who grow up in the church, grow up loving Christ, grow up as we almost always pray, that our kids would never know a day when Jesus Christ is not Lord of their life. What prayer do parents have for their kids more than that? None. I want my kids to be holy more than I want them to be happy. I want them to be in Christ more than I want them to be healthy. And I'm not kidding. Do you think the only testimony that leads to the glorification of God is rebel destroyer turned church builder? Just because the miracle happened first in your parents' life does not negate the miracle of radical transformation or your great-grandparents' life. What if it was that you had a descendancy of faith that you could trace back to Abraham himself isn't that the same miracle? God calling a people who have no rights to be his, adopted by grace and based on no other factor. That's not a miracle? Being transformed in the womb for John the Baptist, that's not a miracle? Is John the Baptist's testimony much worse then Paul's, they both get martyred. And neither would be upset about it. Glorify Christ in the miracle of faith that you have been given, repentance that you have been granted. Wild living doesn't make for radical transformation in Christ. All of us were born God's enemies. Whether your rebellion against God led to what the world around you might call good, it's not godly. And whether the actions you've taken, the desires you've indulged, the sin that you've wallowed in, None of that is greater than the blood of Christ. And when the blood of Christ sanctifies, it does so miraculously. Tell the story of God's faithfulness in radical conversion like Paul or grown up in faith. No one of those is more radical than the other. So don't get lost in, I gotta go wild live so I can do some great ministry for Jesus later in life. It's a lie. 
Fight that lie with the truth. He calls those who are not his people, his people. Let's glorify God because of that. Amen? So what do we do? How do we respond to this? The answer is more simple than you want it to be. I want you to see three missional obstacles that have to be shirked and confessed and left behind. The first is isolation. Paul doesn't have to go to Jerusalem to establish his apostolic ministry, independent of all others. If he does so, he would eventually become isolated to the point of irrelevancy. Isolation is a temptation that Christians experience. I don't want to be too close to the world. So I'm going to insulate myself. Good luck insulating you from your own heart. It's like trying to run out of the clothes you're wearing. Why can't I get any distance between me and my shirt as I run away? I'm wearing my shirt. You can isolate yourself as a loner. You can insulate yourself. You can say, well, I don't need to go see Peter at all. I don't need to go to Jerusalem. Let's put a new Jerusalem right here in Damascus. And, and, and he can have three generations of converts between him and Jerusalem. But he doesn't. He takes them with him in Acts 15 to Jerusalem for an apostolic council. Titus is there. And the third one is the most tempting. It's indifference. All right, pastor, hurry up. Is this Bible study going to get over yet? I have things to do, people to see. It's the priority of your own heart allowing drift that you would become indifferent to the things of God, that you would be cold or numb, asking questions like, why do we do this anyway? Man, if I kept my tithe, I could have... But whether it's isolation or insulation or indifference, they are different paths that all lead to the same destination. Missional irrelevance. Irrelevance. I know that the men in this room want to make an impact in their families, at work, in the church, don't be indifferent to that desire. It was given to you. And so too, I know the ladies of this church, ladies, hear me for a second. You guys are awesome. Not apart from God's grace and work in you, but because of God's grace and work in you. And you 
love his word or you wouldn't put up with me or any of the rest of the guys in this place. You love Christ and it's shown. You can see it, but I don't know how much y'all trust corporately that you are loved here, that your presence here makes a difference. So don't think that the men and women around you are indifferent to your presence here. Because it's not true. Your presence here matters. So when we talk about these missional obstacles, one of them is to no longer believe the best about the people around you. No longer believe that God is here at work and with you. Let me say this differently. If we're to understand isolation as we see it in this chapter, it's too much space between you and God's people. If we're to understand insulation, we see that it's too much space between you and non-believers, or what I like to call pre-Christians. And when we think about indifference, it's too much space between your heart and God's heart. And if that leads you to irrelevance, let me define irrelevance for you. You miss out on all the fun. Don't you love to see God at work? Don't you get excited to see radical transformation in the two-year-olds and the hundred-year-olds? Ed, we're still waiting for you to get to a hundred because we desperately want to see what faith looks like in a godly man at a hundred years old. So don't you go anywhere. Right? Is it just me who wants to be Ed when we grow up? I don't think so. If you let this isolation, this insulation, this indifference drift you slowly to irrelevancy, you will miss out on the best part of your walk with Christ. It's being with Christ as this work unfolds. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are caught today in the majesty and beauty of your gospel call, Lord, thank you for Peter and James and the Apostle Paul, but also, Lord, thank you for all those whose ministry goes unrecognized in the pages of Scripture and yet was central to the life of men and women and children in this church in Jerusalem. God, we ask that you would lead us transform us, give us eyes to see our insulation, our isolation, our temptation to believe in difference. Father, protect us and lead us away from the path of irrelevancy and use us mightily to bring about your purposes in your people for the sake of your glory and the benefits of your people. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people agree.